My dear GapFest listeners, I have a special announcement today. This year, as you may have heard, marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. And for a limited time only, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and from other shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. I want to talk about my experience at Slate. I've been at Slate since day one. I was the second or third employee of the company, and I've been cashing a paycheck from Slate ever since, really for 25 years. And it's been an incredible ride. I remember before Slate was even named, we were considering what name to have, and it was briefly going to be Boot. And then someone pointed out to Mike Kinsley, the founding editor, that Boot was a synonym for puking, and so we didn't name it Boot. And it ended up being Slate. But the one thing that has defined Slate for all these years has been a kind of intense curiosity and joy at the curiosity of journalism and always asking questions, always seeking to question our own assumptions and question our biases and to have fun as we did it. And that, I hope, has been the hallmark of, of Slate as an online presence, as a print, digital print magazine. And it's, I think, the hallmark of Slate's podcast, which, of course, you, you know well because you're a listener to this podcast. And... I would just ask you, if you get value out of this, if you find that Slate makes you ask better questions yourselves or makes you feel more connected to the news around you, maybe you'll consider supporting our work by joining Slate Plus. So sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus and keep us going for another 25 years. Again, it's $25 off an annual membership through October 31st. So sign up now at slate.com slash plus. Supply chain. I love supply chain. Good, you talk. <laughs> I do, I really do. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 21st, 2021, the Great Resignation Edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., joined by my confreres, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning from Manhattan, New York State. Hello, John. I resign. Bummer. Uh, good. That's so, so everybody's that was quick. resignation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds yeah. me of my favorite favorite story of the guy in um, the House of Commons who stood up to give his very first speech, and uh, somebody from the opposition, after he got his first word out, shouted, "Resign!" <laughs> Did he? That man went no. on to be William Pitt the Younger. <laughs> this week, we'll talk about the January 6th commission and the fight over executive privilege. Will Steve Bannon and others be forced to testify to Congress? Then supply chains are completely screwed up and inflation is rising. Welcome back to the 1970s. We will talk about disco and Jimmy Carter. And no, we won't do that, but we'll talk about inflation today. Then the great resignation. Why are so many Americans quitting the workforce? And is this a good thing or a bad thing? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And also, normally don't mention this, but we have an absolutely epic Slate Plus segment in the works. So if you're a Slate Plus member, gird yourself for that. And epic in a good way. You made it sound like, you know, gird yourself. No. Okay. We're epic like in a good thrilled way. about our Slate Plus well, okay. and Shouldn't we set, talk about what the topic of the I Slate will. Plus I'll is? I will. I'll get to that. I'll get to that in a minute. Oh, okay. I'll get to that right. later. Sure. We will. Plus, friends, if you have a conundrum for our conundrum show, please keep them coming to slate.com slash conundrum. 
Uh, you can post it there. So, for example, a conundrum like if you could make one legal thing illegal, what would it be? Or what fictional country would you like to live in? Things like that. Send them to us for the 2021 Conundrum Show at Slate.com slash conundrum. There seem to be, and Emily's going to correct me in a minute, kind of three contiguous issues going on with the January 6th commission and executive privilege. One, Steve Bannon, not a White House official at the time, is about to be charged with contempt of Congress. Maybe by the time you hear this, he's been charged with contempt of Congress for refusing a subpoena to testify to the bipartisan congressional January 6th commission. That's one issue. There's a second contiguous issue, which is President Trump is suing to prevent the National Archives and other entities, but mostly the archives, from releasing presidential records, his records, related to January 6th, citing executive privilege. And then third, Trump is also attempting to order slash lobby slash coerce his former aides to not appear before the commission. Um, So Emily, all of these seem to raise important legal issues. Can you explain these various showdowns and what the legal issues around them are to start us off? Yes. I am excited about this because it has the potential to resolve these questions about the power of Congress to subpoena people and the kind of the scope of executive authority and especially, you know, is the presidency something that belongs to the current inhabitant of the White House or is it also still somehow occupied by the past occupant? It's exactly the kind of legal showdown that I am really interested in, and I am not sure at all that the courts are going to be willing to resolve it, especially this Supreme Court. So start with Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon does not have a strong claim to defend himself from this criminal contempt charge. Congress has the power to subpoena people. It's really crucial to Congress's investigative power, right? So the idea is that lawmakers need to scrutinize past problems, government corruption, things that have gone terribly wrong, i.e. the invasion of the Capitol on January 6th. And they have to scrutinize these things to know what's happened and then how to fix it by doing their main job of legislating. And Congress power to subpoena has been recognized by the court since 1821. However, Congress has not detained any or arrested anyone for criminal contempt since 1935. And so what's happened is that this power of Congress has just atrophied. It doesn't really exist if it's not being enforced. The courts jail people, arrest people regularly for criminal contempt because they have to to continue to do their work. Congress has gotten into a dance with previous administrations, you know, going back in time, but in particular, the Obama administration, the George W. Bush administration. And what has happened is that the fights have kind of dribbled away. People lose interest over time. There isn't really just like enough political force left for, for example, does former Attorney General Eric Holder need to testify about the fast and furious gun uh, issue from when he was in DOJ. And so these things kind of get dropped. And if one Congress turns over, then they have to start the subpoena all over again. And so, you know, if a Republican majority is trying to enforce a subpoena and Democrats win, they can drop it, etc. This one might have some legs. And because Steve Bannon was not an administration official when he was talking to President Trump in the days leading up to January 6th, and also was not a lawyer, the idea that, you know, there's some kind of very, very huge mantle of executive privilege that also covers him seems like pretty laughable. That's just the first part 
of course, though. You asked me about other things, too. I'm going to stop there anyway, though, because I've been talking for a while. So, Emily, the the one of the things I just wanted to catch that you said is that because what Bannon is engaged in and the and uh, former President Trump as well is basically poo flinging to kind of slow everything down, um, uh, distract everyone for two purposes. It seems to me one delay everything so that if the House goes back into Republican hands, this whole thing can be shut down, and then two to shift the public fight from a fight about one six for January sixth and what led to it and the fact that much of the habits of mind that created it are still taking place in the present to shift it from that turf to some other turf to a kind of quasi-legal turf in which people say, oh, you you people on the left, you're obsessed with Donald Trump and you're so that it moves away from death and insurrection and moves into some other arena. Even though we know those two things are taking place, your point is there are still important things to be assessed here um, and that and that you can keep those two things separate. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. I mean, you know, the issue about like the National Archives and suing them to keep Trump's presidential record secret, we have basically until now had a kind of uneasy compromise where usually the current executive extends some kinds of protections to the past executive because you think about like, oh, hey, what about when I'm out of office? I want this extended to me. This time, though, President Biden does not seem inclined to do that. And, you know, you can argue that this is another way in which Trump has distorted norms and rules, right? Because his actions were so extreme. Now Biden's seem extreme kind of in response. Or you can argue like this is not a good practice. Actually, we have a big problem with too much secrecy in government in general and especially in the executive branch. And we should just have more sunshine here. Right. And I mean, it is hard. It's you can well imagine certain kinds of presidential records that even Donald Trump, even loathsome Donald Trump created that should not be released to the public and and that Biden should protect. But I think the point that that a lot of Biden's defenders in this are making is this is about an insurrection to overturn the government of the United States to to effectively stop the government from the, of the United States from working. And the idea that records relating to that would be protected seems grotesque that the, if there's anything we need to learn about and to prevent because the main job of the president is to, to safeguard the constitution and to safeguard the government of the united states and if, if we cannot allow a free and clear discussion about what happened we're really in a state yeah and also i mean you could imagine a zone of executive privilege within the january 6th like cone, right? You could imagine, okay, if Trump called his lawyer that day, either his private counsel or the White House counsel, you wouldn't necessarily want those records, right? right? Like, there should still be some sphere of presidential secrecy, maybe his innermost advisors. Like, I'm not sure exactly what I think about Mark Meadows and whether he also should be subject to criminal contempt. But I do think it's really important to have better Congress needs to have more power to subpoena. They need to be able to enforce this power more than they currently do, I think. I mean, don't, John, don't you think it's deeply worrying that this, this what's going to happen is this is going to get dragged out and dragged out. Bannon is not going to show up. It will get dragged out. And these other cases, the, the Trump executive privilege cases, will get dragged out. And it will never get resolved because in the case of Bannon, the House will turn over. The Republicans will almost certainly win the House in 2022. And... They'll drop the subpoena, and yeah. and Bannon will never have testified. It won't have been resolved, and the and in the case of the Trump records, the Supreme Court or the courts are just going to 
just going to avoid making a decision. They just don't want to wade into this and nothing will ever get resolved. And we're going to end up in a situation which is kind of where we were during the Trump years, which is that Trump, we've already forgotten this, but for the last, you know, several years of the Trump presidency, Trump officials didn't come testify before Congress or certainly before the Congress when the Democrats controlled it. They just would not come and testify because they, there was nothing to press them to do it. They were not, it was not, they were, Democrats were not able to compel them to testify. And so you, you have this situation where you have a totally, uh, an executive branch that has no effective oversight at all. They didn't turn over records. It's, it's, it's not a good place for us to be. It's not only not a good place for the country to be, but it is a, it is a way in which the January 6th commission and the whole topic of January 6th relies on or doing away with it ends up reinforcing all of the behavior that led to January 6th. I mean, just to step back for a reason for a minute, the reason you have a study of January 6th, whether it's in Congress or anywhere else, is to look at the habits of mind that allowed one January 6th to happen. And what you will notice is that when you're doing that, you see that the defenders of the former president and those who want to protect the Republican Party are engaging in exactly the habits of mind and exploiting those and further perfecting them in in trying to basically make this disappear. They're doing exactly what led to the January 6th insurrection in the first place. And so to your point, David, the total disregard for the rule of law, the um, I'm in the executive and I can do whatever I want, the totally supine posture of Congress, all of those things are to be investigated. But instead, the scenario you lay out doesn't investigate them. It reinforces them by creating the situation where Congress doesn't have enough respect for itself and by the, in this case, I'm really talking about Republicans who are in a branch of government that was assaulted, but may very well not vote to hold Steve Bannon in contempt. And so don't have enough respect for their own institution to uphold its norms. Forget what you think about Donald Trump, just to uphold the norms of the place you work. It's a further weakening of those and thereby creating the condition for more mayhem down the road. So, yeah, it's troubling. It's why Liz Cheney said, you know, basically what's at issue here are fundamental questions of right and wrong and to prevent the dismantling of, of the rule of law. Well, and, and in this case, Congress isn't even that supine. What, I, what worries me, Congress is not supine. Congress is doing its, its trying. I mean, the Democrats have a majority. They're able to make these votes, and, and I assume that Bannon will be held in contempt of Congress. It's that the other, the, it's the other institutions that need to go along with it, the courts uh, in particular, are just not willing to wade into a fight between the branches. And so we, well, we, we have a, well, go ahead, Emily. Yeah. We don't know that yet, right? I mean, first the Department of Justice has to pick up this criminal contempt charge and prosecute it, and then the courts have to rule. Right. But and, all the evidence of recent years, are the, the courts do, do not want to get involved in, in fights between the branches. And given the choice, we'll find ways to avoid having to decide it. And, and so we... What that means is that the, the branches that no one can no one can hold anyone accountable. But you're right, and you've invited a clarification. I, my point was basically depending on how the Republicans vote on Thursday, because if they voted unanimously to hold Bannon in contempt, right. and you had all Republicans and all Democrats standing up and saying, "How dare you?" Then that would be an assertion or exertion of institutional power that they're not gonna. That, that's a highly unlikely outcome because people see their interests in protecting their political team more than the institution. And that's, I guess that's what I meant in terms of further right. showing that you can do whatever you want. And Congress, if you've got the majority, or even if you don't have the majority, if you're about to get it, then, then you know, the, the second, then the first branch is not going to really do anything to stop you. 
Emily, do you think there's any reason to expect courts to act briskly to say enforce enforce any of these uh, congressional actions? Or and if the Department of Justice then try, tries to prosecute Bannon, that the courts will move quickly. Or if if the Trump records issue gets to courts, the courts will act quickly on that. I mean, the Bannon argument is so thin that it feels to me like it should just move right along. But I mean, I realize that that's not usually how these things work. And I do think you're right that the courts are going to, in the first instance, try to send it back to the branches to work it out. It just that seems so clearly not a likely resolution in this case. They should just rule. And I think that's actually true about the um, the lawsuit that Trump brought against the National Archives. That one, the issue is the current versus past administration getting to make the call. And I, again, I don't really think it's that legally complicated. Emily, could they name a special master, as they sometimes do in these cases, and basically say, the court could say, we recognize that even outside of uh, attorney-client privilege, there are instances in which a president needs to have unfettered conversation with his staff. And But this is a special case because one, the January 6th is not about like energy policy. So we're going to we're going to have a special master who can look at what's being turned over, turn over anything related to, to January 6th, but don't turn over anything that would run afoul of this worthy thing to protect, which is a president's private communication with his aides. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a good resolution. You can also have an agreement where the judge keeps the documents, what's called in camera, in their chambers, effectively confidential until the judge has looked through everything and determined what's proper to release to the public. And indeed, that kind of negotiation over testimony could also extend to Mark Meadows, where you sit down ahead of time and hammer out the kinds of questions that he's allowed to answer in public. And that can happen with, you know, congressional investigators or it could happen through the courts. All right. One of the delights of the GabFest is our Slate Plus segments. These bonus segments we do for Slate Plus members, they started out as an obligation. They become a joy, a place to let our inner freak flags fly. And every so often we hit on a Slate Plus subject that makes us really excited. And we have one of those today. And we're just going to preview it briefly here. One of the most persistent criticisms of the GabFest is that I, David Plotz, interrupt Emily Bazelon. I have been criticized for this for years. It is a frequent theme of tweets about the podcast and how it's a symptom of a general tendency of women to be silenced or men to talk over them. And today we're going to talk about that. We are going to face that baldly. And we're really excited because we've got the numbers on just how bad it is. So... I strongly advise you, if you're a Slate Plus member, to listen to the segment. And if you're not, join Slate Plus. You're going to want to hear the segment. Go to slate.com slash gabfestplus and become a member today. You also get so many other things. No ads on Slate podcasts and bonus episodes of shows. So slate.com slash gabfestplus. I barely contained myself from interrupting you. I know. I know. Me too. (laughs) It was hard. Beautifully beautifully done. (laughs) The specter of inflation haunts America. One measure of inflation hit a 30-year high in August, with prices up 4.3% over the previous 12 months. Rising prices have hit used cars, regular cars, new cars, that is, houses, other goods. And the inflation specter agitates politicians like Joe Manchin and, and Senator Cinema, who are citing inflation as a reason for scaling back government spending bills that are being considered by Democrats in Congress. Inflation broadly speaking, is the increase in prices when demand for a good goes up, but the supply of the good doesn't. 
And the current surge of it is a product of tons of different factors, but there are two big ones. One is that there was a lot of government rescue money put into people's pockets to drive spending, and they've been spending on things. And more interestingly, the problems that in the global supply chain, that the goods that we counted on getting to us are not getting to us as quickly or as cheaply as they used to because of a variety of problems, mostly started by the pandemic, but not entirely. So we're going to talk about the state of in inflation and supply chains. None of us is an expert on it, but by the end of this discussion, maybe we will become experts. So John, John. Capose <laughs> is experts. Uh, yeah. I was at a Target the other day, and what was striking to me was not that the prices at the Target had gone up, yes. but that there were tons of empty shelves at a Target, a Target, yeah. a store that is like, you know, one of the great uh, logistics enterprises in the world. Right. How did we get into this situation? Right. So the, the throbbing bounty of the American large store, vast shelves of every damn thing has been interrupted. And that's that's weird to see. It also highlights and you put your finger on the right place to start, which is the weirdness of this. This is and why the traditional 1970s analysis of inflation and even all of our previous thoughts about inflation are a little askew, according to the economists that I've talked to anyway, which is because these are shocks as a result of a lot of the things you talked about, and we can unpack a lot of the other ones, but not systemic issues in the in the workforce, they think. But they also quickly hasten to say, we've never come, we haven't for 100 years come out of a once in a generation pandemic. And so we don't know about all kinds of the ways the, the economy, and in our next topic, we're going to talk about one of the weird things that's happening in the economy that people didn't predict, or a lot of them didn't predict. So they're not so sure exactly. But on the supply chain thing, I think um, two, two pieces people should go read. Jordan Weissman wrote a great piece in Slate, basically saying this is the result of the fact that we were all stuck at home and we ordered a lot of stuff at the uh, main port in Los Angeles. Imports are up almost 18% over the previous year, which was a pretty, which was a big year too. We're just ordering more stuff that needs to come through ports as a result of being at home during the pandemic and the fact that there's a lot of government transfers to people that have put uh, money in people's pockets or lessened the blow of the, of the pandemic and they're not spending the money in other ways. So this is a big glut of demand from the U.S. consumers. And then there is another, uh, and then another piece to look at is David Lynch's piece in the Washington Post that goes through all of the many, many different causes of this supply chain interruption. Um, but the, the supply chain itself, whether it's getting from China, where factories were closing down because of COVID, to uh, the shipping lanes and the shipping containers and the shipping vessels, all of that operates on this somewhat rickety, in some cases, highly rickety system that is optimized to do big work around the holidays, but then slow down, clear the backlog. It's not supposed to operate at this absolutely frenetic pace for so long. And what happens when it does it is that parts of it start to break down. And once things start to break down, you have a cascading set of failures at all kinds of different points, which then compound the failures and you end up having situations where ships have to sit out uh, off the coast of Los Angeles for two weeks or trucks that used to um, do their routes in three days now take 17 days. The, the truckers are losing money because they're stuck sitting there 
on their can for the for hours and hours and hours waiting for these ports to clear. This one guy waited so long he taught himself how to salsa dance while he was sitting there parked waiting to to pick up a um, a container. Meanwhile, con- there are so many containers clotted at the ports that in L.A. they're putting them in some nearby neighborhood. So you you see it all along the line. And and I think what's what's also important to remember is, I mean, you've, you've made this point, John, it's just, it's not one thing. It isn't the pandemic. It's that when you build a system which is optimized for kind of speed and efficiency, when one part of it goes wrong, it can have a really unlikely effect elsewhere. If, you, if you're building something, assembling something from 100 parts, and each one of those 100 parts is necessary, but each one of those 100 parts is coming from somewhere else in the world, if the 99th part it comes from a part of the world which is suddenly disrupted. You cannot make the final good that you need, and so everything, everything piles up. And there's this amazing um, concentration of industry that's happened now, so that certain kinds of industry tend to cluster in individual countries or individual regions of the world. So if every, you know, if the vast majority of of semiconductors are made in a few places, and suddenly those places are not able to ship or not able to complete orders, then that that affects businesses everywhere else because there's no other uh, there's no other redundancy elsewhere. There's mu- the, the economy is much less redundant, um, and so it feels like we we've reached a situation where we're highly dependent on a few countries to make things and ship them to us, and any attempt to fix that you can't just build a semiconductor plant in a day it's not that you can suddenly be like oh we 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 need more semiconductors for our autos or for whatever it is for our phones and we're just going to tune up another assembly line and get it going it takes years for these things to get fixed so it's it's slightly optimistic to hope that oh all these problems will be resolved they it they got broken in a day they got broken in a month but they can't be resolved in a month not only does it take a long time to solve some of these big problems, the fact that, you know, U.S. ports were 16th in the world in efficiency or the fact that there's no light rail system to take stuff from the port to the warehouses. You can't build that in a day. And people are nervous about building it in a day because once the pandemic glug goes away of consumption, then you won't have these issues. So why invest a bunch of stuff in building a cathedral if nobody's going to come back after Easter? Although one of the problems is the lack of um, planning coordination across the country where ports don't want to share electronically, like they don't want to have a big landing page where everyone knows where everything else is going. And that sounded very inefficient, like it had to do with various fiefdoms and the Europeans are much more straightforward about this. That sounded like a problem we could fix. Um, The other thing that struck me was learning that the seven largest publicly traded ocean carriers reported more than $23 billion in profits in the first half of this year compared with just $1 billion in the same period last year. And that seems at odds with this whole, like, problem of all these knotted supply chains. But it sounded like the explanation is that you have these huge freight bills that only the giant ocean carrier shipping companies can afford. And so they're essentially sucking business away from the smaller carriers. And that made me worry that we're in yet another kind of spiral in which we end up with this, like, winner-takes-all, you know, sort of near monopoly problems or just like the big companies are getting all the money. Yeah. The cost to, to um, ship one container to a warehouse used to be 5,000 bucks. It's now 26,000. 
And to your point, Emily, you have the truckers who are not making money. Then you have these perverse incentives where it is better for a shipping company to take a container and hurl it back over to Asia to bring stuff when you can make $26,000 than it is to use that container to go to Iowa and pick up a bunch of corn. I'm not sure you ship corn in a, sh- in a shipping container, but stick with me. Imagine there's, it. Yeah, there's no there's no incentive to do that. And so farmers who are you know already taking it on the chin and farm exports are further taking it on the chin because it just makes more sense to send your container back over to Asia than to drive it into the middle of the country. So I want to close this segment by talking about inflation. So inflation is going up. I just sold a house. That house sold for a lot more than I paid for it, and partly because of inflationary pressures. Um, but inflation was this was this goblin of the 1970s when we were kids. It was like this thing that people talked about all the time. And then basically since the early mid-80s when the Fed decided it was going to choke inflation in the cradle every time inflation you know, made a little peep, uh, we haven't had any inflation in this country effectively for 40 years. There's been no inflation. Now we have 4% inflation over a year by one measure, which by 1970s measures, you know, Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter would have, like, they would have done backflips if they'd had 4% inflation, at least Reagan at the beginning of his term and Carter throughout. 4% inflation would have been heaven. And now 4% inflation is seen as cause for catastrophe. Are you guys, do you guys sit and worry about inflation? I mean, I am so happy to be relieved of worrying about things. So I really went for the idea that, like, worrying about inflation was a thing of the past and I could just, like, laugh at it. And now it just seems less clear that that is um, going to be true forever. It seems much less durable. And so I just kind of don't know what to think. Are you worried about inflation? No, not at all. I mean, I inflation generally helps, broadly speaking, it hurts people. It hurts richer people. It hurts the saving class. And that's why it tends to be treated as a tragedy. And it actually doesn't tend to be so bad for people who don't save and don't see the value of their savings decline. And what happened, the way you solve inflation is you, you raise interest rates and you choke off businesses and people lose their jobs. And so the solution for, and people at the marginal, like the people who are in the least uh, safe position to keep their job, lose their job. So I've always felt like, you know, the inflation is this, is this thing that we, uh, that we're really cruel about, but the cruelty tends to actually affect poorer people and the richer, richer people who are, who worry most about inflation really shouldn't be entitled to worry most about inflation. But wait a second, if you spend a lot of your money on things like groceries and rent and the inflation is affecting that, then you would feel that. But wages rise, right? Well, and so inflate, one of the things inflation does is raise nominal wages to go along with it. Now there is a, there's a lag period, but what you don't have, if you're, if you're, uh, the people who have assets, who have, who have savings, like inflation starts to rise, rises 8%. They're in that what's in their bank account does not rise at all. And so they've effectively lost 8% of the value of what they own or 10% of the value of what they own. If it's risen 10%. And so the, so the people who, who, who have savings are hurt hardest by inflation. Well, unless unless prices, it depends where prices are going up and how what's happening. I mean, gas prices are going up, food prices are going up. So people who li- live on the margin, those are those are real things. Now, if you're not driving as much because of COVID, maybe the gas prices aren't as bad. But that that does help. Pe- and obviously, people on a fixed income, although the Social Security cost of living adjustments are going up, 
to to um, try and keep pace with inflation. So it's not just the the uh, investor class. But the the question about inflation is whether these are systemic issues, long term problems with the economy, that there's a shortage of money available if you have too much government spending, and that that will have a long term impact on the ability to raise money and invest, which which companies have to do in order to make stuff and hire people. And the economists at the Fed who were surprised by the inflation because of supply chain issues still are saying that they don't see long-term issues of the kind that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are worried about, that they don't think that the economy has a long-term issue, that these are all issues as a result of COVID-19. And the reason that matters, of course, is that you know, those who don't want to spend a lot of money supporting President Biden's agenda can play on the fears of inflation that you talked about, David, which are very powerful politically. But there are a lot of economists who say those fears actually aren't really there. And there are other bigger fears in the economy, big issues, things like women taking the brunt of the pain during COVID-19, childcare costs, you know, reducing the ability of women to earn in the workforce, education being uh, a mess and therefore uh, hurting the opportunities for people to, to achieve opportunities, that those things need fixing, that those are the bigger worries in the American economy than the threat of inflation. Who knows where you come down on that? But um, it's not as clear cut as those who are raising the specter of inflation would say. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Great Resignation, what a fantastic term. The Great Resignation is a term to describe the mass exit from the American workforce that appears to be happening. So more people left their jobs voluntarily in August than any time in history, any month in history, apparently, by one measure. 4.3 million people, which is about a million more than usually do in a month. And in a whole bunch of industries, healthcare, retail, food service, Childcare, teaching, there 
enormous exodus of workers. And there are a lot of reasons for this, which we're going to get into. There's burnout from frontline healthcare work for a long time. There's fear that people have of very COVID-y jobs where they don't feel safe in their jobs. There's resentment toward uh, abusive employers. There's an unwillingness to tolerate grueling work and terrible pay when there are other uh, resources, government resources that have been made available to people. So it's a really fascinating issue. And the question is like, is it a, is this a temporary thing? Is this a, a huge shift that's going to happen? Um, is this just a, a momentary blip where a few people who have extra cash in their pockets decided to make a change? Is it a good thing? Emily, one lesson of this is obviously that a lot of work needs to be paid more. Yeah. Paid more made just more attractive, right? I mean, I just, cannot in my heart find it in me to resent people not wanting to work crap jobs. Seems like if they don't have to do that and there's something that makes them happier, they shouldn't have to do that. And by crap job, I mean a lot of different things. That's like totally in the eye of the beholder. But when people are voluntarily exiting like this, it suggests that they've rearranged their lives in some way where they don't need this income or it's just not worth it to them. And that seems like a totally valid choice to make. I mean, obviously, if people start to feel pinched, they can come back into the workplace. But in the meantime, it just seems like it's on employers to make conditions better so that people want to take the jobs. Yeah. Anytime someone does something volitionally to take control over their own life, it's a good thing. The huge There were these huge layoffs so. at the beginning of of the pandemic. And that was terrible. Bad thing. That was terrible. People were storm tossed. They were a victim of their, you know, their employer panicking. They were a victim of this disease. But these decisions made after, you know, a year and a half of pandemic and with the full context of what's happening, these are, and made, made voluntarily, uh, are good because people are, when people act to have control over their life, it is unadulteratedly a good thing. I mean, in the timeless battle of capital versus labor, it just seems like labor is voting with its feet. Now, it's not the same thing as like getting the raise or the vacation days, but it's also something. Right. It's probably not unadulterated. I mean, you could imagine conditions in which it wouldn't be. Uh, but but in the main, um, it's good. And the, the pen penalties of job lock, which we used to talk about a lot in the healthcare context, are huge and real. The idea that you're locked into a job because you can't afford to leave because of healthcare or various other things. And so breaking the the lock of job lock is is huge. And I think Derek Thompson makes a really interesting point, which is that at the Atlantic, which is that we may look back at the pandemic and see that that there were many things that happened and changed, but that you could imagine looking back and thinking that this actually completely changed American attitudes towards work for generations. Then the question to you guys is what do you think needs to happen for that to happen? Because part of this is the result of government programs. I mean, if the Affordable Care Act didn't exist and people didn't have health care outside of their jobs or there weren't unemployment benefits and things that could give people a cushion, you probably wouldn't have seen as much of this um, entrepreneurial behavior. So, so how does it stick? Right. Well, I get really interested by the fields where the economics don't work at all. So there are some fields where they cannot pay workers more. Childcare and elder care are the most interesting examples of this. That that people who work in childcare and elder care are paid quite poorly, even though their work they're doing is essential. They're paid quite poorly. 
And that's not because, and, and they actually, especially in childcare, you need significant qualifications. In some cases, you know, college degrees and, and you have to pass all kinds of, you know, background checks to, and you have to have health certifications to do it. But there simply is not enough money in the system. And the people who use the service do not have enough money to pay more into their child care provider such that their child care provider can pay the workers more. And and so you can say, oh, these child care workers should be paid more. But in fact, the employer cannot pay them more because the, the customers, the parents, don't have the money to pay more. And and this is why this is why what the federal government is considering is so important, like this infusion of funds to effectively subsidize childcare wages, which is what everyone else in the world does. Every other country in the world does. We're not doing it. And as a result, we just simply cannot provide uh, adequate childcare for people. And and there isn't a, a fix that a, an individual employer can carry out that will make it work. Right. That the private market is failing in terms of wages because of the dynamics you just described and also regulation, right? I mean, we have in a lot of states very strict rules about the number of kids you can have per provider. Um, that's also part of the deal. I mean, and the Democrats in their Build Back Better bill are trying to address some of this, although my understanding, and this is a secondhand translation of a piece that Matt Brunig wrote. So I hope I'm getting this right. But my understanding is that the subsidy only goes up to a certain income level, and then there's a cliff. And so that would actually really be a problem for parents who are above that income level, because there would be this big hike in wages, and then you would get no help. So I hope that they iron out that wrinkle in the bill. The problem, of course, is that they are in the worst possible environment for wrinkle ironing out, because the, and this is what's one of the great tragedies of the way that the Build Back Better legislation is just being talked about, regardless of what's in it. The whole notion of Build Back Better is based on the disaster relief idea that when things are flattened, you create a system that takes care of all of the inequities illustrated by the flattening and makes things better. And so what you have here is this great resignation is illuminating the idea that the social compact is changing. And as, as David points out, there are parts of the social compact that are important that can't just be worked out by the market. So in whose hands do you put the trust to work this all out? <laughs> and that's that's a huge issue, like a massive issue at the heart of this bill and of the next elections. And it doesn't really get talked about. The way it's being talked about is basically like, can we get under this dollar amount and in the fight to get it under a dollar amount all kinds of reasonable discussions about how whether things should be means tested whether they should sunset how long they should exist where the money should go all gets flattened by just trying to get to a number yeah bulldozed maybe is a better word and i mean what's really distressing about that is that if this bill is really kludgy it's going to discredit government public solutions once again and i just we really cannot afford that can I ask a sort of philosophical-ish question about this? So, you know, one wants the economy to be sort of thriving and humming along, right? Everybody's better off when you hear like, oh, the economy is doing well and more people are employed. That sort of feels like Bonnie news generally. And yet one also imagines that some of the reason that people aren't working as much is that they're also buying less stuff. And like, maybe that's fine. Maybe we all buy a lot of stuff that we don't need as much. You're what, both the, what shaking we just, your head. We just, just had a segment a about inflation <laughs> because there's so much demand in the market. 
<laughs> well, for certain goods, right? But not for everything. I mean, all the stuff that's getting stuck that we don't get. Like, couldn't we just imagine a world in which people are working less and buying less plastic and we're all better off even though the economy is contracting? This is my question. Although now you're both well, but smiling at me where indulgently. The, where, where, the, where the labor market seems to be failing is in sort of human-to-human work. It's healthcare. Well, maybe we need fewer like sandwiches in plastic wrap. I don't know. Like maybe there's just a lot of purchasing of things that are slightly more expensive for convenience sake that don't actually make people happier or healthier. Right. But what does make people happier or healthier is say to be taken care of, to not die in a pool of your own shit. Like because you have yeah, you no, have someone to take part, care of I'm you. Not, you have your yeah. child I, your child not be left alone right. for hours yeah. in, in an empty room squealing. Right. I, I'm I'm talking about I think I need like a very sort of communist control of the economy where we just excise the parts that I don't like. Yeah, if, right. Well, that's not communist. That's you as benevolent um, dictator with a magic wand. Um, but, you know, the, the, the challenge here, though, um, is that, and this is true also with the price shocks from the previous discussion, is that um, the companies that are able to handle the wage increases to keep people or create or give signing bonuses or do all those incentives tend to be the big companies. If you're a small bookstore or a small Main Street, you know, America store, your ability to handle the wage pressure of losing your workforce is really diminished relative to the big companies that have, uh, you know, lots and lots of cash that they're sitting on. Okay, so that's bad. Clearly. Well, there are also there are two there are two points I want to make. One is that there are all sorts of things that cannot be fixed with higher pay, even if the company could afford it. So you cannot fix n- nursing shortages with higher pay because you cannot magic new nurses into existence. Like nurses have to be trained; it takes years to train somebody as a nurse. And so, if huge numbers of nurses have left the workforce, you cannot suddenly by offering ten thousand dollars a year more in pay create nurses who don't exist similarly with long-haul truckers like i don't yes long-haul truckers can be long-haul truckers actually have to be trained to become long-haul truckers so you can't simply say oh we're going to raise our wages ten dollars and those long-haul truckers will suddenly be there they aren't they need there's a time gap between when you raise the wages and when you can get it for certain professions not for a barista or not for someone in a bookstore but for certain jobs but i i want to close with asking you guys this if a friend, a really good friend came to you, maybe not a good friend, a not particularly good friend, came to you and said, I want to leave. Someone you don't like at all. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> if your mortal enemy. Uh, I'm a t- I have a career. This is not, I have a career as a teacher or a chef. And I'm a, I'm a young, this is a youngish friend. And I want to, I'm going to give it up. I want to leave. I'm going to give up. I, this is no good. Should you encourage them to leave that? I totally understand when it's something you know, somebody who says, I'm a, I'm a, a, a waiter, I'm a server at a restaurant, and I'm going to leave because it's like, I don't control my schedule. But what if someone has something which is a career, and they're going to leave it in the early stages, should you encourage that departure? I don't know how to answer that in the mm-hmm. abstract. I mean, don't you ask a lot of follow-up questions to yeah. try to understand why and how attached they are and how much they've invested in said career? Like, I just, I don't know. Okay. Well, what my reaction to your question is it goes back to a larger question I had, which is that if people are leaving the workforce, where are they finding meaning in their lives? Is it purely negative partisanship, which is to say, I know what I don't want, 
um, and and I'll figure it out after that. Or um, if you are able to be the author of your own identity, does that make you more at sea? So the question to your teacher is, what gives you meaning? And and if something else gives you meaning, or you have at least a road to find meaning in some other thing, then follow that road. And if the job you're in gives you no meaning, because a job like teaching, you can imagine, much like journalism, can be deeply rewarding on the meaning scale and not necessarily on the remunerative scale. And so if all the meaning has gone out of the job, the economics are more important. So you got to probably see if they have a, a process for, for finding meaning in their life that's going to help them when they're out on the seas by themselves. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you have greatly resigned and you don't have enough for the sort of super high-end liquor for your cocktail, but you've got enough, you know, you're a, nice, a nice cheap bottle of vodka, some tonic from... from uh, big bottle of tonic that you that you were able to hoard steal from your last employer and you're having a vodka tonic what are you going to be chattering about emily oh my god there is a supreme court case coming up in the beginning of november that is not going to make big headlines it is so distressing to me it is about my least favorite law in the entire world which is the law against bigamy short no No, the Anti-Effective Death Penalty Act, which has effectively in so many ways strangled what are called habeas claims. These are the post-conviction appeals that people often desperately try to bring when their trials or convictions have gone awry and they're trying to dislodge them for a variety of reasons. So this law passed in the 90s. It's a Clinton-era law. It has made it much, much harder to get into federal court. Let's just say that. This case is called Shin versus Ramirez and Jones. And Jones is someone who presented evidence of innocence, luckily, before he was executed. Ramirez is someone who presented an innocence of intellectual disability. And nobody's really arguing about either of those things. Instead, what the state of Arizona is arguing is that these claims shouldn't have been developed at all. The court should not be considering this evidence. The reason they were allowed into court was a claim called ineffective assistance of counsel, which is basically like your lawyer really sucked. What happened to both Mr. Jones and Mr. Ramirez was that they had ineffective counsel before their trials or before their convictions. And then afterward, they got state-appointed counsel to bring their first appeals who were also ineffective. And there has been, since this 2012 important Supreme Court decision called Martinez, this little window, this little relief from the strangulation of EDPA, where if you had this double ineffective assistance of counsel problem, you could get into federal court. And the idea was that you were not at fault for the fact that your claims weren't properly presented, which indeed you're not when your lawyers are terrible. And now essentially Arizona is asking the Supreme Court to cut off that avenue. That will just make it really, really hard to rectify exactly the kinds of injustices of, you know, evidence of innocence and intellectual disability that plague these particular cases. It is such a kind of cruel case to me. And I'm concerned about what the Supreme Court is going to do with it. So that is, alas, awaiting us in the beginning of November, Shin versus Ramirez and Jones. John, what is your chatter? Uh, I have two uh, chatters. One is an essay by E.B. White. You would think that if there was a Venn diagram of my interests, 
essays by E.B. White and the presidency and its burdens, you'd be right in the kind of nuclear center. And yet somehow I missed an essay by E.B. White called um, One Hour to Think. And 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 again, it's even... That is the most John Dickerson yes. title ever. I know. Really. And, and it's about Eisenhower, who in my book on the presidency, <laughs> oh I spend a lot of time talking about how Eisenhower had this really attractive way of thinking about thinking. And then he was always attuned to his ability to make decisions based on his lack of sleep, his anger, um, and all kinds of other things that he was thoughtful about how he did his job. And so this is about E.B. White's writing about the fact that Eisenhower announced in 1954 that he's going to spend an hour in the day just thinking that the burdens of the office was just he was getting nibbled to death by ducks. And then he was going to spend an hour, half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening, just thinking. And so White, as he does, uh, turns it into a meditation on how and what how you think and and that you can't really do it when you're trying to do it and it needs to be kind of serendipitous anyway it's just lovely and it was sent to me by a twitter friend uh, mark wegner who uh, is under the handle uh, arnie lane and it was just really sweet of him to send it so i'm so grateful and it's a tidy little essay and if you can't find it anything by eb white will do um i also um emily correctly totally uh, called me out for not watching Succession and saying I was too busy. But in fact, it's not that I was too busy. It's that I was watching something else instead. I have, as, as uh, listeners know, I am a fan of British procedurals. Um, and I've now watched McDonald and Dodds throughout the rest of its season, uh, which was a delight. And I've now discovered Vera, which has been around for, I think, 11 episodes. Anyway, excellent British procedural um, and um, with some great characters and uh, wonderful acting and, and good stories. So if you're into that kind of thing, um, watch Vera. I feel like it says so much about John's like psychological health that he is watching whatever the hell Vera is instead of Succession. But also it is a drag for me because I would like us to talk about Succession and John's utter refusal to watch like peak television is like, personally, I'm like, come on. Even though I like respect and admire your TV habits. Well, first of all, I did, I was right there with you on Ted Lasso. Um, and uh, I also watched- But then watched David the... stifled my efforts to talk about that, oh which, you know, God. now I've finished I know, that David's... show and I actually would like to talk about it. That's, but that's that's totally playing against type because David knows peak TV much better than I do. So it's a, and I also watch like the morning show. So there are some things that I watch that are new. Um, little is PTSD. Is the new season on, of the morning show good? I haven't watched that. The PTSD of the morning show is a, is a little amusing, but um, yes, there's the, the morning show has some excellent acting and some extraordinary writing. Um, in the second uh, season, because I watched the first season. And yeah, I yeah, it. yeah. Right, in the I second season. Um, okay. But it's a very niche. I mean, you know, I come at it from obviously a niche view. Um, uh, but I don't, uh, what, what's going to happen is I will watch like one episode of Succession and then I won't be able to shut up about it. And you, we're going to have to do like 19 things on Succession because that's the way I am. But knowing that, I find it difficult to engage. Also, I don't think, I'm not sure whether Anne would be interested in, you know, we're a joint operation here. All right, I'm going to do my chatter. But you guys could continue to have your <laughs> That conversation on <laughs> totally the side. Totally boring <laughs> conversation about television. <laughs> my, although my chatter is so extremely boring that who knows? Oh, that's my chatter really is, an advertisement. Yeah, my chatter is you're just, chattering about. No, my chatter, it's not that it's boring. It's that it's, um, maybe it's niche and comfortable. It, 
I want to talk about my new obsession, food obsession, which is a dish that I discovered in the New York Times cooking app called Sukme Fan, Cantonese cream corn with tofu and rice. And it's a dish where you take fresh corn or you could use canned corn and you puree some of it and then you and then you leave some of it whole kernels and you cook it with ginger and garlic and scallion and broth and then you put it over rice or and maybe have it with tofu or have it with egg or have it with chicken. I'm telling you, my friends, it is the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. I would eat this thing every day. It's also any meal. It's a great breakfast. It's an incredible lunch. It's a fantastic dinner. It is so, so, so good. How do you sell suk? S-O-O-K. It's first word. Suk, mei, M-E-I, fan, F-A-A-N. And oh my God. Oh, I found just it. All right. Delicious. It has, weirdly, doesn't have great ratings in the Times Cooking app, and I don't understand it. I would give it five-star rating every day until the cows come home. It's fantastic. Listeners, you have chattered to us. Maybe send us a, a recipe as a chatter. That could be a good listener chatter. Uh, but you tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest, and our chatter this week comes from Adrian Monthony. Hi, Emily, John, and David. My name is Adrian Monthony, and I'm bringing you my cocktail chatter from lovely Quebec City. I'm sure many of you who have traveled by plane have been to airports where you've noticed the occasional less-than-new-looking plane kicking around, maybe parked off to the side of some distant airport building. My cocktail chatter is a fascinating Twitter thread by Chris Croy telling the tale of one such plane, which sat dangerously close to a runway in Nagpur, India, for 24 years, and how his father is partly to blame for that. The story has elements of a great tale that your father would tell you over dinner one night. Televangelists, a quick trip to Tijuana for a test flight, and a failed maiden voyage that ended with the plane making an emergency landing in Nagpur, where it sat dangerously close to that runway, before finally being towed away 24 years later. Though some of the details of the story are now being debated, and we might never know exactly what transpired, I think the story of how this rickety old plane made it to India and became a dangerous nuisance for 24 years as the result of a mechanic side project is a tale worth reading. It was a really fun Twitter thread. I enjoyed it a lot. Excellent. Thanks, Adrian. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. Incidentally, I'm reading Gabriel Roth's novel now. Did you guys know Gabriel Roth wrote a novel? That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote a novel. It's the 2013, the one I'm reading is a 2013 novel. I'm reading it. I'm really enjoying it. It's called The Unknowns. I've just started it. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at AdSlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week, unless you are a Slate Plus member, in which case we're going to talk to you now about an amazing topic. And now right, we've arrived ready? at the part of the show we we've all been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hello, Slate Plus. Hello, Slate Plus. So our adventure begins. Where should we begin our adventure? Should we begin it with this amazing email we got yes. from Lindsay Lee? So our adventure begins earlier this week when Bridget passed forward an email from Lindsay Lee, a GapFest listener, and it turns out a brilliant and hardworking person. Uh, who likes to do her research. And so Lindsay sent us a very long email with an attachment, and I'm going to read this. 
I thought you might be interested in some data on how often you interrupt each other. I'm a massive fan of the podcast. In fact, this is the podcast that got me started listening to podcasts in the first place. But in a feminist rage in 2016, I became fed up with how often I felt like David was interrupting Emily. So being the massive dork that I am, I thought I would go collect some data on this to confirm my perceptions and then write a blog post, go viral, get rich and famous, etc. So from June 2016 to June 2017, for 55 episodes, every week I listened to the episodes in front of my computer and noted each interruption using a simple program I wrote in R. R is a programming language. After a year of data collection, I did some basic analysis and found that. And now I'm going to stop. Do, 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 do. Okay. <laughs> so now I want to back up and talk about some of the things that happen when we do this podcast, which is we do this podcast and then... We get responses to the podcast, and we get a lot of responses to this podcast on Twitter, and then in email, and then in my I, my DMs are open on Twitter, so a lot on DMs, and I get a huge amount of pushback, and John gets a little bit less because I think we can set for this purpose of this discussion, we can acknowledge that John is a very polite person. We get a, I get a huge amount of pushback on Twitter and elsewhere, basically saying you're such a loudmouth interrupter you are talking over emily what's your fucking problem plots can i have just one piece of information here which is um and then i get attacked for doing so when in fact they mean david so people will say i just can't stop listening after these interruptions and i'll go back and think oh man did i completely go overboard and so the people, I will inquire with these people and I will say, well, when did you leave the show? And they'd say, well, at the eighth minute. And it, like, I haven't talked in the first eight minutes of the show. And it turns out I'm getting blamed for David. Um, <laughs> so I just want to like share a few tweets. David Plotz, for everything you hold sacred, can you just not interrupt Emily Bazelon for one podcast? Hashtag justice for Emily. Or David Plotz, Please have an intern go through and count how much you interrupt during the Slate Gap Fest and how gendered it is. It's been bad and it's getting worse. That's from a couple weeks ago. I have somehow thus far refrained from interrupting either of you, which of course is a fake play on my part because as we have all known from the beginning of Gap Fest time, I am the chief interrupter offender on this show. And... I have my own analysis of it, but I just want to begin by saying that when I sometimes realize how much criticism David is getting for this, I feel like I'm just kind of prancing around on this like free reverse sexism, like get out of jail free card that I've been given. And it feels uh, it feels unwarranted to me because when we got the data from Lindsay, it absolutely confirmed my own impression, which is that I interrupt the most. I think I interrupt twice as often as John, which, I mean, it could have been like oh, 10 no, times. no, three times as often as John. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. So, well, I mean, uh, first of all, I think that I, you know, there's sort of a classic speech pattern of of overlapping speech, as the linguist Deborah Tannen calls it, which is frequent among Jews, especially Eastern European Jews, which is where my family is from. And it's not meant as an insult, though I think it can still be quite rude. And I include myself in that characterization. It's really a kind of expression of enthusiasm. It's a way of continuing to engage and actually like sort of sitting on the edge of your chair and really listening. So I think that's one form of interruption, which at least if it's not, it, it, even if it's still rude, at, le at least it's well-intentioned. So let's, let's 
Oh, go ahead, John. Can you give the the findings? <laughs> After you. Yeah, let's give the findings. Okay, so I have the I have Lindsay's paper. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.